The old pilot's playing tales. I'm a dead man. Captain Luolabate was no stranger to hijackings. This was his third. The first had been four years earlier, in 1992, when he was flying a Boeing 727 for Ethiopian Airlines. He had taken off on an internal flight across Ethiopia from Addis Ababa to Bahadar, a short flight of around 200 nautical miles. But not long after takeoff, two men armed with hand grenades took control of his aircraft and made their demands. Apparently the men had been security guards for the former president of Ethiopia, Mengistu Hale Mariam, who overthrew the Emperor Hali Selassie and who was responsible for the appalling famine of the 80s and also responsible for the deaths of millions of Ethiopians. These guards had escaped from prison and they wanted to be taken to Nairobi's main airport, Yomo Kenyatta International, given $5 million and fuel to fly to Toronto in Canada. Captain Abate safely navigated his aircraft to its new destination and after a four-hour negotiation, the hijacking was resolved. Three years later, and by then flying the Boeing 737, hijackers again demanded he divert his aircraft, this time to Sweden, but he managed to talk the men round and, as before, they allowed him to land safely. Of his third hijacking experience, he said, This one was different. The way they were talking, they didn't want to live. It was the 23rd of November, 1996, an Ethiopian Airlines flight ET961 had taken off from Addis Ababa for a scheduled flight to Abidjan on the Ivory Coast via Nairobi in Kenya, Brazzaville in the Congo and Lagos, Nigeria. It was a Boeing 767 with 163 passengers on board and a crew of 12. They'd only been airborne for 20 minutes when a passenger stood up and ran up the aisle to the cockpit, followed by two others. Everybody should be seated, one said. I have a bomb. Opening the cockpit door, they attacked the first officer, Jonas Mercuria, and dragged him out of his seat before confronting the captain. The men were described as young, in their mid-twenties, inexperienced, psychologically fragile, and intoxicated. Two were apparently unemployed high school graduates, and the third was a nurse. They immediately claimed that they were three of eleven hijackers on board, and grabbing the PA microphone, they announced to the passengers in Amharic, French and English that if anyone tried to interfere, they had a bomb and they would use it to blow up the plane. By now they had armed themselves with the aircraft crash axe and a fire extinguisher which they were using as a weapon. Our attitudes towards hijacking is very different now, particularly after the experience of 
An intervention to neutralise a hijacker is much more likely in present day, but then the agreed response was to negotiate towards a peaceful solution. If anyone could do this, it would be Captain Abate, but he was immediately met with a problem. The hijackers demanded to be taken to Australia. Abate tried to explain that he only had fuel for a further two hours of flight, enough to complete the first leg of his journey, but he would need more than six hours of fuel to reach Australia. It just couldn't be done. In answer, he was shown the airline in-flight magazine, where it clearly stated that the Boeing 767 could fly for 11 hours without refuelling. Despite his best efforts, Captain Abate just couldn't convince the hijackers that they wouldn't be able to reach Australia. He even brought the Nairobi Control Centre controller into the conversation. Nairobi asked, ETH-961 Nairobi Centre, confirm you're going to land in Australia? Gentlemen, the captain replied, we can't make Australia. We have only two hours of fuel. We can't make it to Australia. We will make a water landing. ETH-961, confirm you can't divert to Mombasa. Confirm you can't divert to Mombasa, came the reply. They refused to land anywhere other than Australia, so we have no choice, except when we finished our fuel we will land on water. The conversation continued as both Abati and his controller tried to explain to the unbelieving hijackers the situation they were in. OK, I just wanted our hijackers to hear what you are communicating, and if you have anything to say, go ahead and tell them. His controller tried again. OK, I am advising you that with two hours fuel you will be unable to reach your destination, and probably you will have to land on the water. The best solution is for you to land in Mombasa. Go ahead. OK, Abate replied. They say they don't want to talk, and they're not willing to negotiate on any terms. Again and again they tried to convince the men that their attempt to reach Australia would fail. Nairobi asked, Confirm that they are ready to land in the ocean and drown? Ethiopian 961, do you have any alternative aerodrome where you can proceed other than Australia? Any other alternative aerodrome, please advise. Captain Abate replied, I have no alternative aerodrome, sir. I'm in a very tight corner. The fuel ran down, lower and lower, but Lula Abate had been trying to follow the east coast of Africa towards the south. Eventually the men realised that they could still see land and they forced him to head out over the ocean. They passed over Zanzibar and out into the Mozambique Channel, heading southeast. The captain had been warned not to descend below his cruising level of 39,000 feet but he could see that his fuel was almost exhausted. He pleaded with the hijackers to allow him to broadcast to the passengers over the aircraft PA system. No, came the reply. He continued, What I would tell them is that 
at this very moment, since it's been beyond my responsibility, the aircraft is bound to crash. Do you want to die? he asked one of the men. We are going to die anyway, he replies. So let me go to the passengers and face death along with them, the captain asked. The reply was chilling. From now on I say stop such talk. Finished. No talking even while you die. You die silently. One of the men is sitting in the first officer's seat. He's drinking from a bottle of whiskey. He has a device with him he claims is a bomb. He forces Captain Abate to drink. Come on, start. It will be an appetizer. Die drinking. What else can I do for you? Abate replies, We don't have time. Leave me alone, please. You will drink more, comes the stern reply. Ahead of him, between his position and the island of Mozambique in the distance, are the Comoro Islands, and Captain Abate has been quietly heading towards them. The drunk hijacker is fiddling with the controls, kicking the rudder, hitting the instruments, turning the ailerons and pulling the thrust reverse levers at random. Their conversation is interrupted by the warning system, as finally one of the engines, starved of fuel, runs down. The hijacker complains that the aircraft is descending. It will descend by itself, the captain explained. As the engine stops, it descends, whether you like it or not, it's descending. As the man leaves the right seat to talk to the other hijackers in the cockpit doorway, Captain Abate takes the opportunity to use the PA system to talk to the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot. We have run out of fuel and we are losing one engine this time, and we are expecting crash landing, and that is all I have to say. We have already lost one engine, and I ask all passengers to react to the hijackers. What he hopes is that the passengers will realize the desperate situation that they are in and overwhelm the men, regaining control of the aircraft, but he doesn't make himself clear enough so that even those who understand English are confused by his use of the word react. The leader of the hijackers returns and hits the microphone out of Lul's hand. The passengers do nothing, and the second engine fails. His aircraft is now a glider. The hijacker instructs the captain not to touch the controls and threatens to kill him. The captain says, I am already dead because I am flying an aeroplane without engine power. The first officer, who had earlier been forced out into the cabin, goes to the rear of the aircraft where he sees a lot of economy passengers have their life jackets on and that some have already inflated them. Along with the cabin crew members, he helps them to deflate their life jackets and shows them how the jackets should be reinflated and how to assume the brace position during impact, but many keep their jackets inflated. Now only on standby instruments and with a small amount of power from the RAT, the ram air turbine, Lulabate is fighting with the hijacker to keep control of his aircraft 
I am a dead man, he says. I am a dead man handling an aircraft without fuel. They are only a few thousand feet when Jonas Mercuria, the first officer, fights his way back into the cockpit. He's been injured and is bleeding, but he takes his seat to help his captain. The hijackers fight them and struggle to take control of the aircraft, and Captain Abate does his best to line his crippled machine up parallel to the waves. He can't lower his flaps, so he's coming in fast at around 175 knots, that's over 200 miles an hour. The aircraft hits the water with the left wing a little low and it trails the tip along the surface before the left engine pod settles into the sea. But unbeknown to the captain, just beneath the surface is a coral reef that smashes into the engine pod, twisting the aircraft around until under the enormous stress of the deceleration it starts to cartwheel, breaking up into several sections. Quietly sitting by the sea sipping cocktails, the residents of the beautiful Galawa Beach Hotel were shocked to see a huge airliner plough into the water only 500 yards away. Captain Abate's plan had almost succeeded Instead of disappearing into the vast Mozambique channel with little chance of immediate rescue, he had managed to ditch his aircraft near help. If it hadn't been for the hidden reef, his landing might have gone well. As it was, the residents of the hotel moved quickly to the crash site with anything that would float. A strange collection of rubber boats, little sailing yachts, surf and paddle boards, turned towards the aircraft to help those that could be saved. Scuba divers who happened to be nearby helped drag some trapped from the upturned fuselage, but for most it was too late. Some hadn't heeded First Officer Mercurio's instructions not to inflate their life jackets until outside of the aircraft and became trapped in the sinking fuselage to drown. Many had died from the impact itself, including all three hijackers. One lady told her story. We started to swim towards a boat, but there were bodies floating in the sea and pieces of luggage, so the divers had to come and rescue us. We were dragged on shore with all the dead bodies which had blankets over them. Another recalled, Five or six times I went up and down into the water. I wanted very much to survive. I fought through all the bodies and everything and grabbed a broken part of the plane. Slowly, slowly I came out. Another survivor was the United States Consul General of Bombay who had been sitting beside his wife. He remembered the landing well. The first bump was really gentle, he said. Then the second one was really hard. The third one was even harder, like a 70-mile-an-hour auto accident. The last one was like an earthquake. When the fuselage broke up, he was thrown the length of a football field through the air, landing in the water, still attached to his seat and still alive. But when he looked for his wife, who had been sitting beside him, he realised she wasn't there, 
and he thought the worst. But unbelievably, she had been thrown even further and also survived. The white sands of the beach were soon stained red as the dead and dying were dragged ashore. However, many owe their lives to the holiday makers and hotel staff for the assistance they rendered. Amongst them were a group of French doctors who did sterling work. Although the crash site was only a mile from the Mitsamiuli hospital, it was soon overwhelmed and the most badly injured had to be transferred to a larger facility on the island of Reunion and even as far away as Kenya and South Africa. Many were not so lucky. 125 passengers died but 50 had survived, although many were grievously injured. For the deceased, there was not even a morgue on the island, so a meat-packing plant was pressed into service. Of the crew, six were killed, but both Captain Abate and First Officer Mekuria were amongst the survivors. Captain Lul Abate had done a remarkable job in the most difficult of circumstances. He did his utmost to save his passengers and was lauded for his efforts, although, in his quiet way, he insisted on deflecting the praise to his first officer. He said that Jonas was the real hero. His colleague fought the hijackers while he was bruised and bleeding, giving time for Lul to land the airplane. He was the lifesaver, Lul said. When in his hospital bed, he was asked if he would continue flying. Only death or retirement will keep me and flying apart, he replied. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.